Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Welcome to Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast with your host, Scott Kinville. Let's hop on that Zamboni time machine and go back in time to look at hockey's glorious history. And what's going on, hockey fans? And welcome to episode number 88 of Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast right here on the Sports History Network. I'm Scott Kinville, and if you're watching on YouTube, you will notice that things are a little bit different this week. Uh, I am not in the studio, uh, and there is no Dave the Save Warner. Don't worry about it. There are no problems with Dave. Everything's fine. Um... We just had a little uh, booking issue with the studio, so I am uh, flying solo this week. But don't worry about it. We got a great show lined up for you. Before we do, though, I just want to send – it's been a rough week for the world of sports here, and I just want to send out some uh, condolences here to the families of Bill Russell and Vin Scully. Uh, both passed away this week, both legends of sport, really. Uh, Bill Russell, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, basketball player of all time. And, of course, Vin Scully, longtime broadcaster for the uh, Los Angeles and Brooklyn Dodgers. And – both, like, like I said, are just legends and will never be forgotten. So our condolences to their families. Anyways, anybody who has been watching this show for a while knows that I am an L.A. Kings fan. I am a diehard. I love the team, and I love them for, as well, a very long time. Let's put it that way. I'm 48 years old, and I go all the way back to the 80s. And so today, today, I have the longtime head athletic trainer for the L.A. Kings. Uh, this guy is a legend as well. He was the... Uh, Head athletic trainer for the Kings from 1972 to 2006. He is a member of the Professional Hockey Athletic Trainer Society Hall of Fame. He is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, a member of the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, a member of the Rhode Island Hockey Hall of Fame, a member of the L.A. Kings Hockey Hall of Fame. And he holds the, most, the record for most games as an athletic trainer at 2,632. He is the one, the only, Mr. Pete Demers. Pete, thanks for coming on. I'm happy to be here, Scott. It, I got to tell you, it is a, it is a honor and a, and a pleasure for me to have you on because, like, I, like I just said, I'm a, I'm a huge LA Kings fan. So if I start fanboying it out, just you know, don't worry about it. I'll be okay. So, <laughs> so how's Thanks. things out there in southern, uh, sunny Southern California? Great, everything is real good. Uh, kind of a sad day yesterday. My daughter and the granddaughter went back to South Korea. They were visiting. They haven't been here in three years, but uh, spent a few weeks here, and it was nice. And I stood on my front step and watched their playing Korean air go at uh, yesterday afternoon. It was kind of a tearful time, but uh, oh, I can imagine they made it safely. And I talked to them every day on FaceTime. So everything's yeah. good here. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, that's, that's always great to see family too. You know, it, it really is. So it's uh, been retired since 2006 from the Kings. Uh, but like I said, the impact that you've had is just unbelievable. Um, so, you served, actually, you were in the Vietnam War before you were a veteran, before you became a head athletic trainer, which you were certified by the National Athletic Trainers Association. 
Pete, what made you decide you wanted to be an athletic trainer? Well, I've been around the rink. I was around the rink since I was a little kid. I lived a few blocks from the old Rhode Island auditorium and, uh, it was, we were called rink rats. We'd go there, clean the ice, and uh, sweep the stands. They let us skate. Became friendly with everybody, all the old players like Camille Henry and Paul Larvey and even Howie Menard and, you know, sure. like this whole list of them. In fact, our reunion's coming up in another week, so uh, I'll be going back to Rhode Island for that. And uh, But... Uh, when I got out of the Air Force, I went to work at uh, Quonset Point Naval Air Station as an aircraft mechanic. That was my trade in the, in the military. Okay. And uh, I'd always stop into the Rhode Island Auditorium to see everybody. And I uh, stopped in one day to see George Army. He was a trainer there for like uh, almost 40 years. And he was ailing, had some issues, and he needed help. And he asked me if I could come in and help him in, in work. So I did that. I worked at night at the Naval Air Station. And I, then I'd work all day at the, at the rink. And uh, then he, he became, he couldn't work as much as he wanted to work. And, uh, but he was there, but he couldn't do the job as much as he wanted to. So he, uh, you know, I couldn't do both jobs. Sure, sure. So I quit the government job. I got a lot of heat from that from a lot of people because, you know, uh, I made $67 a week and, and I had a decent job with the government, but I made $67 a week with the Reds, but I loved hockey. Sure. And uh, after being uh, for a certain amount of time, I, I was able to go to Brown University and University of Rhode Island to get my training and uh, received my certification and uh it was just uh, a great run after that but uh love of the game i think was uh i put ahead of anything else oh absolutely and you know what it, it's the rhode island reds or the providence reds are, they're just one of those legendary teams that uh you know it, i think there should be more made about them really uh, yeah. and especially like the old ahl teams it's it's you know it's fascinating when you go back and you look at the history for all of them. But um, so you start off as an, as what year did you start? Let's see. Was it 1965. Okay. So you were a trainer all the way up to 2006. What were some of the big changes that you saw from the time you started in the time you retired? And what were some of the duties you had over the years? Well, the main duties of an athletic trainer are diagnosis, uh, prevention, treatment of athletic injuries. And, uh, and, but the trainer at that time wore many, many hats, uh, trainer, equipment manager, massage therapist, nutritionist, strength coach, uh, all these different jobs. And, uh, we just did it. We just did all that stuff. We loaded the bus by ourselves and in and out of rinks late at night, sharpened the skates. Man. But then, then as time went on, it started to be more specialized players required more care and uh i mean there's so so many stories and but the game has changed unbelievable now there's seven trainers traveling uh, uh you know, four trainers uh three equipment managers and two guys at home to accept the packages that come in take care of the guys that are back home they have two strength coaches and then they have a full-time chef serving breakfast in the morning and then 
lunch after practice. And uh, I remember one year, I just throw this in one year uh, at the end of the season, we kind of have a re review and Rogi called me in. He was a GM then. And he said that uh, the coach who happened to be Robbie Fatorik had complaining that I was uh, eating a sandwich in the locker room and uh, in front of the players. And uh, Rogi said, well, don't you think he might be hungry? I mean, he hadn't eaten. All yeah, really? You know, <laughs> but now it's just like unbelievable. And, uh, as far as the, like the strength equipment in Culver Rink, we had one bike and they hung their clothes on it. We had two, had one pair of dumbbells. I used that to hold the door open. And, uh, you know, all it's, all their training was done on the ice. And if you lost a game, you know, you might be a pretty tough skate the next day. We call it a bag skate. And, uh, and uh, that's how they got their conditioning. Wow. Wow. So in other words, I mean, in the early days, you were pretty much the jack of all trades. Well, we just, that's what we did, you know, like that's just, that's what it took. And even now in the minor leagues, it's, it's a lot, way a lot, a lot better than it was, but uh, still a one or a two man show in a lot of cases, especially in the lower minor leagues and the job's the same, whether you're in the NHL and the show, or if you're in a team in Albuquerque in the Eastern league or something. Holy mackerel. I, I tell you, that's, it, it blows my mind, really, when you think about it, because not only were you responsible for the health of the players or if something happened to them on the ice, so you basically had to be an on-ice paramedic, but you were also taking care of everything behind the scenes, which is absolutely incredible. It, it yeah, really people is. People have no idea. Like, I used to, after a game, we'd take the gear to the practice rink, the, all the skates. We had a second set of gear, so we'd leave the forum, and we'd throw the gear in a pickup truck, and go over to the rink and it was mostly me just doing that nine trips up the stairs to Culver rink with all the gear. And then I take the jerseys out to uh, East LA to have them cleaned. I drop them off at midnight and get home at one o'clock and you'd be back in the rink in the next morning at uh, seven thirty, eight o'clock to take care of the players that didn't play the night before, before the other guys came in at 11. Wow. Wow. And was it a lot different for like their um, uh, like physical regimens in the early days as opposed to when you were finishing up uh, meal wise, you know, training wise? Was it a little bit different back then? Well, it's all precise now. It's all planned meals, uh, supplements, everything imaginable. It's just like going into a into a. a What's that fitness, uh, you know, like a store. Planet Fitness or something, right? Yeah, it sells all that stuff. I mean, it's just, it's all stacked up and lined up on the shelves. And uh, yeah, everything to, uh, it's for the players, you know. So sure. that's how it's done now. And uh, you want to have maximum optimal performance out of your players, you got to take care of them. I remember Bob Pulford, he didn't want water on the bench because his feeling was that if the players drank water, it would add more weight to them. And um, we have to, after a year, he was my coach first five years. He was, he was really a great guy, but he was very demanding and very firm. And, uh, uh, but I, I had a great, great relationship with him over the years. And even after he left and went to Chicago, every time the Kings went to, came to Chicago, he'd come down, knock on the door and ask for Pete. And they'd come and say, Hey, Bob Pulford's out there looking for Pete, you know? <laughs> And even my coach, Johnny Wilson, Iron Man, Johnny Wilson in Detroit. Uh -huh. We'd go to Detroit. He, he had a job at a carpet company, but he'd come down and see me. And 
come in and uh, so that's just like so much like family. But yeah, Bob Pulford didn't want water on the bench. We finally had to convince him that we need to hydrate our players. Wow. And when you saw him, did you bring him a bottle of water? Yeah. Beer, you know, beer after the game is one thing, but, you know, they need to have their water. Uh, so, so after the Reds, you had a, a brief stint with the um, Columbus Checkers, and then you were hired on for the Springfield Kings to be their head athletic trainer in 1969. Kind of a no-brainer question here, but I got to ask it anyway. Is that what led to you getting hired by the L.A. Kings? Yes, it, it was all uh, like it was unbelievable how everything fell into place. When I was in Providence, um, I, I worked there three years. And after the third year, um, George Army, he was still alive. He, uh, Dave Creighton was a coach. And uh, Dave Creighton, he wanted his guy in as a trainer. They just didn't think that I had enough experience. Mm-hmm. So... So they let me go. In fact, they asked me to come in and work at training camp, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I did to help the new guy. And then uh, George sent a fax out to Andy Mulligan. He was a commissioner of the, um, of the, uh, of that league. What was it? Uh, International league. He was a commissioner and he sent it out to all the teams and uh, Columbus wrote back and I, I went uh, on it, left at midnight on one night on an icy night in, uh, in November. And I went to Columbus and I was there for the rest of the year. And then uh, Frank Christie, who was a trainer, a longtime trainer in Buffalo. He was a good friend with Johnny Wilson because Johnny's brother, Larry played in Buffalo, Larry Wilson. And uh, so he called Johnny, Frank Christie called Johnny and they brought me in for an interview in Springfield. And uh, so they hired me there and I was there three years. And then uh, Norm Mackey, who was a trainer in, in LA, went to uh, Atlanta in the expansion and uh, with Pat Quinn as a coach. And then, uh, so it opened it up for me and Larry Regan uh, hired me. Wow. Uh, uh, let me ask you, was uh, Eddie Shore still in Springfield when you were there or was he gone uh, by then? Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. He would, in between the periods, he had a, a room upstairs above the locker room and he played golf. That was a shooting range. So our guys are in the locker room in between the periods trying to focus on the game and you hear these golf balls bung, bung <laughs> off the ball. He's up there. And, and one night he came and knocked on the door and he called everybody Mr. He came and knocked on the door and Mr. Demers, uh, so I went out and he said that Larry Johnson, he was a player, he said his skate, his blade is not on correctly. So he he watched me. I had to go in the locker room and, and Eddie Shore, he, he, he owned the he owned the building, or he didn't own the building, but he owned the franchise or something. At the, he owned something at the time, and he had a, a lot of power there. Uh-huh. And he removed Larry Johnson. I had to drill the holes and everything. In the, <laughs> and this was in between the periods. And uh, But, yeah, and then at night, after a game, we had one car, so my, my wife Marilyn would have to wait for me to come out, and it would be an hour after the game. Sure. And uh, so she'd... It'd be freezing out, so she'd have to she'd hide in the ladies' room. And Eddie would come in with a flashlight 
and it would be dark in the ladies' room. He'd come in with a flashlight. She had to stand up on the seat in the stall. He'd shine the flashlight in underneath the stall to see if anybody was in there. You know, he was a uh, he was an amazing, <laughs> amazing guy. He over he was overlooking everything. But uh, yeah, wow, he has, a, he has a great resume. Oh, I guess so. I guess so. Another one of those. The, stories, the stories flow flow out. You know, we could talk all day about <laughs> each and every guy's uh, disposition and uh, and and all their quirks, but. Uh, it was so much fun to go to work every day. You know, you go in the rink at eight o'clock in the morning and then maybe you get a little rest in the afternoon on the rubbing table for an hour, but then the game starts. And then after the game, you might fly to the next city. I mean, it's even if you're home, if you count the hours, it's 18 hours from the time you go to work to the time you come home. And I couldn't wait to go back to the rink in the morning every single day of my career. It was just like, Unbelievable. I remember I first got that feeling when I was in Providence. The, the games, well, a lot of games were on Sunday nights. And Monday morning, you'd walk into the rink and you'd smell that beer and popcorn and smoke. And it just like it was like oxygen to your brain. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That is, that's great. That is awesome. So you were, arrived in Los Angeles in 1972. Um, we all know that, you know, hockey is pretty big in LA now, but what was it like when you first arrived in Southern California? There were more Montreal fans in the rink than there were Kings fans. <laughs> and a lot of, whenever Montreal came, there were all these guys with white hats on white, white, like Ben Hogan hats. Mm -hmm. And they come to call them the white hats, but you know, we have 8,000 people and, uh, that's just the way it was like on the miracle on Manchester. I think we only had like 8,000 people that night. And really we had a big comeback and uh, just jump into that a bit but uh we had that big comeback and jerry Buss, the owner he left he left early when it was five nothing and uh and what a surprise he got when he got home <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but yeah but it was still you know it was just we kept building kept doing marketing and kept trying to bring players in and maybe that was one of the problems in the early years we bought some name players in to help our team, but the name players were great guys like Ralph Backstrom, Jill Marat, mm -hmm. um, Terry Harper, just name after name after name, Rogie, that played somewhere else that were great, Bob Nevin, and, sure. and you know, Bob Wolford came in, and uh, Larry Cahan, like over and over and over names, but you no, know, they were names, but they, the legs, the brain was working, and the and the hands are working, but the legs weren't as working like they like they should have been uh, when you're 25. Sure. So that that might have that you know I'm not a hockey authority, so um, that might have um, made a difference why we didn't have that success. That, but the guys worked their tails off. But it was a camaraderie that they had together. You know, when practice ended, everybody went to the bar. And some did drink a few beers and some didn't before they went home, but they were always together. Team dinners, everybody was together constantly. And the, that's what makes our game so great is the camaraderie and sense of family that people just don't realize. Like I was mentioning, uh, you know, when you're a baseball player or basketball player, the parents, they throw a ball out in the street and the kids go and play and lights come on and you come home. But hockey, the family is really involved. You know, it's five o'clock in the Absolutely. morning in the rink. You get a lot of expensive gear. 
and uh, driving all around to different towns in your area to, for the kids to play, but all the whole family is involved in, uh, and you're with your teammates constantly. So that's, I think, and they come from farms all across Canada, uh, traditionally, and, and, and cities, but, uh, you know, the family is a big word in our game. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about that. And you're right. Hockey, I think, more than just about any other sport out there, you know, whether you're on another team or whether you're, you're going against each other or on the same team, it is. It's such a close-knit family because everybody pretty much experiences the same thing going through the sport. You know, and so far as, like you said, the 5 o'clock in the morning practices, late nights out at the rink, it, and it all kind of, you know, that time away from your, your own family really kind of creates a second family for, you know, for the players and for the coaches and the staff and, and everybody. And it's, it does create something really wonderful, actually. I think that, um, excuse me, I, I think that it's the character builders that starts at five years old. And by the time they get to our level, they have extremely high character. And, and uh, you know, like trainers have to have empathy and, and uh, perseverance and, these trainers, they have these players have so much character. You can depend on them. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's it's funny in talking about the, the early days. You know, I mean, obviously, when I say early days, I I'm referring to the pre Gretzky days. So it, for me, that's kind of like the the line of demarcation, really. Uh, but you know what? The, the Kings did have some tremendous players back then, and it's you know, again, you know, I'm sure. With L.A. having, you know, the Dodgers obviously are, are huge there, the Lakers. And, you know, success brings in the fans. And so, obviously, they didn't win the cup in the early years. But some of those early players they had, it's, it's a shame that they didn't get more um, in the way of the limelight. Kind of like a, like a Rogie Vachon or a Marcel Dion. Uh, the triple crown line was legendary. Exactly. Butch exactly. Goring, you know. That's, that's something that I think about all the time. Imagine if Marcel Dion was playing in Montreal or in a team that was really good because he was a great player and he had to compete against Lafleur every year after year after year. And Marcel was so much fun to watch because he was so flashy, you know? Right. I mean, even flashier than Gretzky was, you know, Gretzky, he, he played, it was all in his mind. Right. Uh, mind sense. And, but, but uh, and Butch Goring uh, uh, was great fun to watch. But uh, just uh, while it's on my mind here, I'll just tell you about uh, uh, Gretzky. We'll jump to him and sure. When you could be stand, I could be standing next to you on the bench, and you look at the net from the bench, so I can see uh, two or three players, and there's a tiny space between those two players, those three players, and the and the corner in the net that's open. And if, if I turn my head six inches or from where you're looking, you can't see that. Only I can see that line. Do you right. know what I'm trying to yep. But he can see it. And then you say, oh, my God, how do you do that? And he'd do it night after night after night. It was just, like, amazing to watch. And so unassuming guy just – came to work. We'd always have all this stuff out for him to sign and he'd, he'd just sign it. And, and then you'd, you'd put a piece of paper to who signed. And then 
then you write on it, just sign. So he'd write just sign right on the stick sometimes. <laughs> but he was a funny guy, and, uh, but he had a lot of pressure on him. But he seemed to be able to turn the pressure off when it came time to play. But, you know, so many interviews and so many people wanting autographs. And wherever he sure. went, he had to win and out of the back. And, you know, they had to rush him around. And, but then when game time comes, he came to play. And, you know, he, he had that move where he'd, he'd come across the, the blue line on the right side. And as soon as he'd get across the blue line about 10 feet, he'd do a quick turn, a pirouette. He'd do it time after time after time, and they still couldn't get him because they were afraid to make a move toward him because he'd give them the howdy do, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, to watch. And Rogie, we'll go back to earlier players like Rogie. Rogie was the calmest guy that ever played for the Kings. Very calm, very focused, really gentleman. His daughter and my, his son and my daughter are the, almost the same age. And so they grew up together. And uh, I never, I only saw Rogie mad once. And, you know, in the 70s, we had that, we call it the NHL gonk. It was a rash that the players got. And a lot of them would have to take off all their gear in between the periods to cool themselves down. It was an itchy rash. Oh, wow. It was all over their bodies. They think that maybe it was caused by the fiberglass from the sticks. So I was constantly huh. washing the gear. I would wash the gear probably every, um, you know, once a week, all the gear. We always wash the underwear and not the under stuff every day. But the gear we would wash uh, often. So I took Rogie's chest protector and belly pad. It was in one unit, small little thing. I took it down and put it in the washing machine. And I went back about two hours later to get it. It was in an afternoon. And the cleanup guy that washes the um, towels and stuff worked for the forum. He put it in the dryer. And it was leather in the front. And it just shrunk like the, the belly pad was like this big. Oh, no. Yeah, this big. <laughs> and uh, Rogie was pretty upset the next day. Oh, I bet. Unlike, uh, unlike Billy Smith, who played in Springfield with us when we were in Springfield. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah, they um, was in the old Big E, the Coliseum in Springfield. Uh -huh. and, uh, somebody broke in one night and threw the small, tiny window about this big and reached in and grabbed his gear. And he came in the next day, and his gear was gone. And he said, ah, oh, I need a new gear anyway. And he wore brand new gear that night. And darn it, they didn't. So then we made these, board, these bars out of wood, and we painted them black to look like real bars. But they broke those and took his gear again. <laughs> so then we had the whole wall boarded up. But, uh, yeah, he was pretty easy going, Billy Smith. Yeah. Just don't well, go around. The front of, just don't go near the front of the net with him with his stick. I was just going to say that. Easy going until you get near them. And then... <laughs> I'll just skip to uh, that Springfield story. Um, when we won the cup, I think it was 71, and the uh, season was really tight, and we had to play an extra game to get it, qualify for the playoffs. Uh, I don't know the exact circumstances of it, but we were playing Quebec, and the game went into overtime, and as modest as Butch Goring was, uh, he went over to the bench before the overtime and told Eddie Bush, the coach, 
you better put your whole team on me because I'm going to get the goal. It's hard. I'm mean, going get emotional just talking about it. He did get the goal. And then we went on into the playoffs and we won the cup. I, mean, we, I think we beat Providence, which was a treat for me because I'm sure. from So, yeah, I have pictures of that cup there. So, yeah, it's uh, – and uh, let's see. Uh, what other players did you have that you wanted to mention? Well, we uh, we were thinking more along the lines. Of, well, obviously, we talked about Marcel Dion. Um, I always felt that, that the Triple Crown line was great. Dave Taylor is just a, a Kings legend that, you know, I I, I think amongst the, uh, the the annals, I guess, of great Kings players, sometimes he kind of gets, you know, because he was the quiet, unassuming type, wasn't very flashy, but he was so effective. But, but Dave Taylor was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And he was such a great guy, like when he – not only as a player, but when he was uh, our GM. And he, he, I was president of the trainers at that time. We were really battling and battling and battling with the league for improve on our benefits. And uh, he gave, and, and we had, now there's two full-time administrators for the Professional Hockey Athletic Training Society, but it was just, you know, our board, doing work and we had Marsha, our secretary helping us and uh, only once did he say you know make sure you give enough time for our team you know uh, he knew I was but uh, make sure you give enough time for our team because Marsha's getting overloaded sure. with all typing all these letters up you know now you just dictate something to a text and but it was a lot of letters to Gary Bettman and Jim Gregory and the Pension Society and our trainer's uh, attorney to try to get things put together. But sure. in that note, we finally got it done. Um, but the sad thing for me was that it was approved and I, I retired in 2006 and uh, the new updated benefit package was approved in 2006 after I retired and they did not make it retroactive. Oh, but they did. The owners knew had that I, my fingerprints, and this is not about ego or anything. My, my fingerprints were on the, you know, the improvements. And so they, they named a Pete Demers amendment and the owners kicked in some money and uh, put it in a new way for me. And uh, so, so that was good. But uh, the, the uh, pension uh, benefit now for tr trainers and equipment managers, and now they're adding assistant trainers to it and it's all snowballing now, but uh, yeah, it was uh, tough going back then. You know, we'd get warned all the time, cooperate with, with different changes they're going to have league-wide with like names on the jerseys and advertising and everything else and, and make sure you give business to these companies and that company that are giving money to the league. And, you know, that, that's, it was pressure, you know, if you don't comply with these things, you know, uh, it could be problems. And so, you know, there was a lot of hurdles for us to jump over. And, uh, but now the working conditions are so much more improved for the trainer can focus on athletic training. He doesn't have to worry about this hook in his guy's stick or left and rights, or if, we, if this guy skates ordered, or how about the names on these jerseys? Who's going to do that? And the trainer did all that back then, but now trainer can focus on his job as a, you know, rehabbing his players and taking care of his players and the nutritionist takes care of her stuff or his stuff and 
strength coaches do their stuff and equipment managers do their stuff. So that's one thing that if I had it to do over again, it would be fun just to walk in the locker room and just take care of my players and not focus on the other stuff, which I love doing anyway. I'd go around with a list uh, in between periods and ask a guy, uh, how's your sticks? Too whippy, too heavy, too light, too stiff. Sure. You know, and those are the things we did. And then we'd call the companies the next day and make those changes. And so, you know, that's, that's just what we did. And then, you know, you have to, the players, uh, the trainers are responsible also uh, for the families. A guy will come in and say, Hey, my wife's sick. I, he just can't call a regular doctor. They would get in next week. So I call wow. the doctor. So, you know, then you're ordering medicine and, uh, through the doctors and, uh, there's just so much stuff that people just have no idea behind the scenes, but now it's so much more refined and so much more professionally done, but we got by yeah. and the players were happy. And uh, we had no, I remember Jay Wells came in and said, Do you, we need tea in the rock locker room in coffee. And so we'll get on the coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. Yeah, right. you know, coffee machine, you know, and then Ron Duguay came in and he said, we need bottled water. Who ever heard of having bottled water? Just drink it out of the tap. You know? <laughs> we, and then, you know, we had no ice machine. We'd use snow from the Zamboni to, to put our ice in our ice bags. And uh, Wow. You know, yeah, like, it's just amazing changes. We used a cold hose in the shower to hose down a guy's ankle you know, freezing cold water. And, uh, you know, now we have ice tubs and cold tubs, hot tubs, jacuzzis, weight room that would match or better than any fitness club you could find around town. Boy, I tell you, you know, and it's, it's incredible when you, when you, you think about that behind the scenes and it's not something that, you know, everybody knows about or sees, of course, you know, but we always talk about, you know, today's players compared to players of yesteryear. And to me, that that's just a losing argument all the way around because I, I don't think you really can truly compare players from, like, say, today's era to 30, 50 years ago or whatever like that. But it's funny you mention all that because I couldn't even imagine today's modern athlete having to go through that, getting, oh, my ankle's sore, so I'm going to put cold water out of a hose on the shower for you. So it's it's just incredible what's you know, how things have evolved. And, and I wanted I'm to get to – some. Some, uh, excuse me, some, some trainers say that, um, you know, agents, second opinions, MRIs, all that stuff changed the game a lot, but that's what we needed to, to upgrade oh, sure. our, the, the quality of our game. And, uh, but we were real fortunate to have the greatest doctors in the world and Curl and Job orthopedic clinic was, uh, right here in LA. It's still operating. And, uh, Players, you go, you, you send someone there and they'll come back and say, hey, well, you, this guy from Boston Celtics was there and Red Sox, uh, you know, or Yankees guys were there and basketball players from everywhere. And they came from all over the, all over the uh, country to come and see our doctors. And those are the guys that are covering our games night after night after night. And um, a lot, you know, then when the agents came along, they'd want another opinion by another doctor. And so I set up a, doctor the guy'd fly to st louis and have someone looked at and he'd the, the doctor at st louis would just say hey go back and say hey tell dr lombardo to operate on your knee you know 
Right. Because right. they knew those guys had the great so that was really good for us. There was no second guessing on the on the quality of our doctors. So that makes a big, big difference confidence wise. And as I mentioned, it's all about for trainers and players is two different categories. For players, it's uh, T and A, and that's not what you might think. It's talent <laughs> and attitude. Talent and attitude. For athletic trainers, it's uh, loyalty and trust. In other words, trainers, they, they, have, they have that loyalty, and that player better hope that I know what to do when he's laying on the ice, and he does. And uh, I'll just tell you, uh, I was at a – at a dinner maybe a couple of years ago and Jimmy Fox was there and he was talking and he said, uh, this is stories a little hard to tell, but he, he said that, uh, he said he got hit one night. He was laying on the ice and he didn't, didn't know what was wrong and what was going to happen. But he said, calm down, calm down. Pete's coming. So, you know, that tells you about the trust that they have in us. And it's not, you know, we check our egos at the door and I, I want to make sure that uh, it's said that uh, there's no egos or, or big heads or anything. It's just that we go to work and love our jobs and what we do. And, uh, and I was very fortunate to, to uh, be rewarded with a lot of accolades and, but it's nothing in, to do with ego. And uh, the one thing that I regret that uh, I'd like to mention is that my mother died when I was in Montreal and I was stretching Sean O'Donnell and someone came in and told me that my mother had passed oh. away. And, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it was on a, it was on a practice day. Uh, we were there for a couple of days, I think. And, uh, but anyway, uh, so I went home and we weren't playing for two or three days or something. And so anyway, I went home and uh, we had the funeral in the morning and uh, I was in my, back in Montreal that night. Wow. Wow. That is dedication. And I regret that a little bit. And then, and then uh, when dad passed away, we were in Chicago and we had a couple of days in Chicago. We never get that. We had a couple of days in Chicago. And uh, so I went home for dad's funeral. We buried him in the morning and I was back at that game that night in Chicago. And I regret that a little, a little bit because family comes first. Absolutely. And, uh, but you know, my brother said that it, mom and dad planned it that way. It, it had to be like, there's no, there's, it had to be because we never had a case like that. Uh, you know, we just don't get two or three days off in the middle of a road trip. So, but I just wanted to pass that along. And there's no ego there. It's just, uh, no, absolutely you know, not. Absolutely this is what not. we do, <clears throat> but the love of the game, that's what started me off when I was a kid. And I still have that love of the game. I'm real active with the alumni association. And, uh, when they have events, they call me and there's, I never had a number on my back, but, uh, I go to Staples and I talk to lots of people. Most of my fans are dead now, but. Uh, <laughs> well, it's hard to get the still, game out of your blood though, isn't it? It's still fun to, yeah. I mean, it's, to, you know, I, I like to, when I'm talking to somebody, I like to save this for the end of this, end of the, my story. And I know it's not the end of my story, but the greatest game in the world 
And, Absolutely. You know, I get emotional. I get emotional when I talk about it. So. Absolutely. It's it it really is. It really is, Pete. So before we go any further into more King's history, I know you have got a wall full of memorabilia behind you that I was hoping you could kind of take us for a little walk through. Uh, you've had quite an international career as well between uh, world championships and Olympics and, and, and of course, NHL All-Star Games. Uh, would you mind showing us a few of the pictures you got behind there? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. And I can tell you a little bit about how that all came about. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so we'll just start off with, uh, how's that? You can see that okay? Uh, if you can get a little bit closer, that would be, there you go. Yep. Okay, so that's that's in Red Square. That's Team Canada, 1986. And we missed the playoffs, and the world championships were coming up, and Pat Quinn was selected as a coach. We had seven players on our team. You can see Marcel here. We had seven yep. players on our team that were chosen. And uh, Eagleson's there. And uh, so Pat Quinn wanted his trainers. And we're Americans, but uh, but they still chose myself and Mark O'Neill, equipment manager. And we went, we had a great time. We won the bronze medal, which is uh, right, uh, right down there. Now that's the world championships, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah, the world championships. That's, that's my bronze medal. Look at so, that. That was pretty exciting, yeah. And then well, the little star game in um, Montreal, '93. Just, um, just is, real quick, um, Pete. Real quick, Pete. Just to finish okay. up with the World Championship picture. So interesting okay. story with that. You, you guys were over there in April of 1986, and Chernobyl, the Chernobyl incident happened while you were there, correct? That's right, and they know they never told us. It, it had gone off like uh, a week and a half or almost two weeks before then, and they never told us. No one knew. Oof. And they told us the night before we were leaving, and we had to get out of there before. They have a big parade in Red Square on May 1st, and we had to get out of there oh. by May 1st, and they told us the night before we left that there was a, a nuclear explosion. Wow. What a nice by-the-way, huh? When we went across the border, some guys had some Playboy magazines they were taking with them uh, to read on the plane and stuff. And when we got there, they confiscated all of them. And, and when, we, when we got back on the plane and went to leave, they gave them all back to us. <laughs> no questions asked, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I just, like I said, I wanted to point that out. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. This is my uh, uh, PHATS, Professional Hockey Athletic Training Society uh, uh, plaque. And this is my kind of my holy grail. This is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Same kind of plaque, same plaque that the players have. And we have a, a wall in the Hall of Fame that everybody can see with our trainers in it. And uh, that is amazing. Yeah, proud of this that is, is an all star amazing. game in LA in uh, 2002. Very guys. nice. Very nice. And we had a 30th anniversary, and this is a plaque. This is a plaque we made up with our old crown, which we were talking about that uh, 
which uniforms I like the most. And these are the ones that I like the most, the purple and gold. That's Warm blue and gold. He's a nice, very nice. That's the history of the Kings is purple and gold. And uh, maybe it was done for a marketing or what, but, uh, you know, you don't see Montreal or Chicago or New York. They don't change their logos. You know, you keep the same sure. logo. But, yeah, that was a great one. That was fun. This is a thousands game plaque. You can't see it very well, but uh, I think I'm not sure when that was exactly. And here's the World Cup of Hockey. We won that championship. Uh, Lou Lamarillo was the coach, but was the GM, and uh, he selected me after having worked several times with uh, USA Hockey for the World Championships and the World Cup of Hockey, and we won. We beat uh, Canada. We were down wow. one game to nothing. We were down one game to nothing. It was in Philadelphia. And then we went back to Montreal to play. But after that game in Philadelphia, we all had to walk down the same hallway. And, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a game of a game, three, three game series. And um, so we all walked down the same hallway and Eric Lindros was walking down the hallway and he said to his teammates, okay, guys, one game down, one to go. And I said to myself, don't ever say that. <laughs> oh, boy. We ended up beating them. And I think the big reason that we beat them was because our our players had a lot of character, but so did the other team, for the Team Canada. But Rob Blake got hurt. In fact, I went to see him in the hospital. He was one of our players. He got hurt and couldn't play in the last two games, and uh, that could have made a big difference because he was a great player. Plus, if you look in the replays of that game, they show it from time to time. They show that, and... Uh, Gretz missed a puck right in front of the net on the right side of the net. It passed to him and he, he uh, missed it. And that would have done it, you know, and for them, Man. for us, that would have been the ice that would have killed us, you know? So, and here's a, and that's Helsinki, a world championships. And what's that uh, say, Pete, 1997? 1997. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. This is a, a PHATS plaque, a Trainers Association plaque. I served three terms as president. And uh, a guy wow. made up me, made these pucks up for me. Pretty nice. And Bruce McNall gave me this when I had uh, 2,000 games. Uh, he, he made this up for me. It's a plaque, and he gave me 1,500 Silver Eagles and a brand new Harley Davidson. Wow. Uh, this was another uh, thing from the, from the LA Kings for uh, LA Kings Hall of Fame. And here's a man. Oh man, look at that! And this one here is the Calder Cup in Springfield when we won the Calder Cup. On Butchie Goring's goal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not on that goal, but you know we ended up winning the cup. But we had okay. to play that game with Butch Goring getting that goal. It was a a game that we had to qualify to get into the playoffs. This is and Pete, uh, you had to have taken a drink out of that cup, right? Pardon me? You had to have taken a drink out of that cup, right? The Calder Cup? Oh, yeah, sure. All right. A couple. Just making sure. <laughs> this is uh, – they gave us these World Cup of Hockey uh, plaques. They're pretty, pretty cool. I don't know how great you can, well you can see all this stuff. but Yeah, okay. This, That's it. This is another um, – 
in Vienna World Championships in 96. And this is in 94. Wow. The World Championships in 94. Oh, look at those mountains. That is beautiful. Yeah. And this that is, is um, beautiful. This is from the Kings uh, 2,500 consecutive regular season games. I never missed a game my whole career. And it's not about ego. It's about loving the game and loyalty to my team. Man. Here's Gretzky. Man, oh, he man. scored 8.02. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. That, that is awesome. That really is. And this is uh, U.S. Hockey Hall of Flame, fame uh, plaque. Wow. This is a Rhode Island Hockey Hall of Fame. It's a it's a there's a pendant in there like a big coin and uh, and this is a, they gave me a jersey uh, from the Rhode Island Hockey Hall of Fame. That's my first jacket from the Rhode Island Reds. Oh, look at that! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my certification from the from the Trainers Association. Wow, fascinating so stuff! See, it, it, it's all it, it's. Here's my big tuna. I got. I'm a fisherman, so here's my big tuna. That's a Look at the size of that. It might still be up, but if you Google Pete Demers tuna, uh-huh. uh huh. Kelly Rudy and uh, Glenn Healy had it on Hockey Night in Canada. Oh, wow! How long did it take you to bring that one in, Pete? Two hours. Woof! A lot of work. <laughs> So, wow. Anyway, again, over and over, I say that, you know, uh, I was so lucky to have uh, have people that had all the trainers work hard, but there's a lot of timing. A coach comes in, wants his guy, the other guy gets fired, and that coach gets fired. So then the new trainer that he hired is gone because the other guy comes in and doesn't want the old coach's trainer. I mean, it just is a snowballing effect. And uh, so, Ego aside, uh, I had 13 coaches, six GMs, half a dozen owners also. And uh, I don't know, I was just able to kind of go along. And then, you know, a lot of times they make a lot of changes just because things don't go right. Right, right. And uh, so it's all just amazing luck and timing. And everybody needs a chance. So I say George Army in Providence gave me my chance. And Johnny Wilson gave me a chance in Springfield. You know? And, Man. And then it that just is... kind of went on from there. So, But, you know, that's truly a testament to just how good you were at your job. Truly. Well, everybody has the same qualifications, and everybody works real hard. And uh, you got to have a lot of lady luck and prayer on your side. Yeah. Well, still though. I mean, that's hats oh, off to you, my friend. Thank you. If it if, if it's fun to go to work every day and make the job is made a lot easier. You know, I just yeah. You wonder, you know, you sometimes I wonder how I was able to to keep going and going and going and going. I'm still going pretty hard now. I'm in the gym every day and uh, having a good time. And uh, but uh, I just wonder back those all those jobs we did. I had seven, I had a total of nine surgeries 
several of them after I retired just to, in fact, that day that I was stretching Sean O'Donnell when my mother died, I tore my a cartilage in my knee. I, he's a big boy and I'm a little skinny guy. So <laughs> stretching him and uh, that, that tore my cartilage that day. But, you know, I went to back to LA. It was pretty sore. And uh, so Dr. Kavitney said, well, we can fix that. I said, well, let's do it on a day off. So we had a day off one day and I went in early in the morning, did it. And uh, it, it wasn't a big piece, but it was a pretty significant piece they had to trim off. And uh, went home, iced down all night, every hour for 20 minutes and no sleep. And got up and went to work the next day. And, and uh, then I jumped up on the rubbing table from the floor just to say, ah, surgery is nothing. <laughs> but my knee was killing me for a couple of days after that, but I never let that let on. <laughs> Said, even even the trainers in hockey are tough. <laughs> like they say about fishermen, if you're going to be dumb, you're going to be tough. So if you're going to be dumb <laughs> enough to be out in the water in the middle of the night and you ran out of bait and your lunch is gone and the waves are coming over the side of the boat and you're not catching any fish, you got to be tough. So if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. So <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh so, Pete, I, you know, like I told you, I'm just a gigantic L.A. Kings fan. And, of course, when I was growing up, I obviously idolized Wayne Gretzky. So, and I'm sure you get asked this over and over again, but, Pac, I'm going to ask you too. So, you were obviously there when the when the Gretzky trade went down. And I read somewhere, and I, or maybe you told me, you, you were actually at the first press conference when uh, when Wayne arrived in L.A. Is that true? And yeah, that's right. Tell us, but... They had it over at uh, the hotel over on Century Boulevard, and uh, I went over there and brought his jersey, went and got his jersey lettered, and uh, and I, I brought it over there. That was pretty exciting time to, wow, Wayne Gretzky's on my team, you know? Sure. And, and we went to training camp, and um, we went to training camp. The first day of camp, he came in. And he had a, a little cut on his finger, like it was like a paper cut or something. And, and this is another one that's, that's hard to tell. But he, he came in, he, he, I put a Band-Aid on his finger. And when he walked out, and I, I was a veteran then, I already worked for a long time. But uh, when he came in uh, 89, 80, when was it? Uh, 88. 88, he came in. I was, you know, I'd already put several years in. And uh, I said, wow, that's Wayne Gretzky. I just put a Band-Aid on his finger. You know, who could say that? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, I, if it was me, I would have saved the rapper. But <laughs> That was pretty exciting. But, uh, yeah, this unbelievable great memories. And, and, they just, and they just flow out, you know. Uh, right. So many things as... Lots of times we'll go to Mexico to uh, my friend uh, has his boat work done down there. And we'll, I'll tell hockey stories the whole way, both ways. They stories just come out, you know, like there's so many. Absolutely. Like, like the Tiger Williams story of he got kicked out of the game after a fight. <laughs> and uh, so he came in, went into the locker room. I wasn't, I wasn't there at the exact time, but. He came into the locker room and the 
the concession guy would always bring a case of beer in third period and he put it on the on the bench by the goalie spot and tiger came in he was so mad about the fight or something he picked up that case of beer and he threw it at the tv and it stuck in the tv and the stick boy ran out of the room he was so afraid and we came in, we came in, in between the periods and this case of beer was sticking in the tv <laughs> so, yeah. was any of the beer soluble anyway I don't know. I can't remember. I, I suppose, yeah, I suppose maybe it was. I remember that. Uh, I, I remember when I was in Springfield, Butch Goring came in and Roger Cote, he was there. He was a player in Springfield. I think he's passed away now, but he he, he played with a toothpick in his mouth. Ooh, that's a little dangerous. His whole career is a defenseman. And uh, so they came in on short notice and I had an apartment, so they came and stayed with me, but they both slept in the same bed because I only had two beds in the other room. And mm -hmm. so they slept in the same bed. And one, one morning, Roger Cote came in and said, you gotta, Pete, you, as soon as Butchie comes in, you gotta cut his toenails because he's scratching me all night long. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I caught him. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's what we do, you know. Right, right. Well, hey, you're the jack of all trades, of course, right? Full manicure. <laughs> so I just want to uh, finish up real quick. Like I said, um, you know, when we when we first started talking here, obviously I named the show Marty's Illegal Stick, but it's not out of it wasn't any any disrespect intended towards Marty. And I'm going to tell you right now, ninety the nineteen ninety two ninety three season was. Actually, even though the Kings didn't win the Cup, it was certainly a, a high mark year for them. I mean, that was a, the first time they had made the Cup final. And it's like I told you before, I truly believe that they probably don't go as far as they did were it not for the stellar play of Marty McSorley that year because a lot of people forget just how good he was that year and just how versatile, too. He's able to play defense. He was able to play wing, uh, can do whatever you want. Um, also in that season, too, uh, Wayne Gretzky had a back injury. And he missed about half the season due to it. Um, do you think maybe the extra rest during the regular season helped come playoff time? Because Gretzky was really good in that playoff series or playoff run, obviously. Well, I think that everyone steps it up during the playoffs, no matter what the circumstances are. So I'm not really sure that had an effect on him, but he definitely got some extra rest. Um, he had a really unique injury. In fact, Robert Watkins, a renowned back surgeon, he had a picture in his book and uh, Gretz had a herniated disc and I think he might've heard it playing tennis in Hawaii and hmm. uh, came into training camp with this sore back. So we had it evaluated and, uh, and that, that disc, that herniation dissolved and went away by itself. And that's very, very, very unusual for that to happen without surgery. It went away. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure a rested player is going to definitely uh, definitely have, you know, rested players. Sure. Probably the only play have a 45-second shift. And guys right. who stay on the ice for longer than 45 seconds, it affects them on the next shift. I remember Bernie Nichols used to stay on the ice way past his shift time. <laughs> so one night, Pat Quinn 
Bernie came to change after being on the ice for two minutes. Pat Quinn said, stay out there. So he went back <laughs> out there. He came back to the bench again after another minute and a half. Pat Quinn said, stay out there. You know? <laughs> so after that, Bernie came off the ice on time. <laughs> but that 93 series, that was, that was amazing. That was an amazing series. And, uh, uh, th you know, then we went to Montreal. And as far as that stick goes, um, there were a lot of players that had questionable sticks. And, uh, and maybe we should have picked up on it, but we didn't really realize it. But in Montreal, the uh, hallway between the, between the benches to the Montreal room is small. And they want to let the fans stick in. If you have two stick racks there, it's difficult space. So they would wheel the stick racks into the Montreal hallway inside their locker room. So they had the measurements on every one of our sticks. So wow. it, was just a, it was, you know, I think they chose Marty because he was, a, a, you know, a high profile, uh, a talented player that, uh, if they could keep him off the ice for a few minutes, that would help. Sure. And so they called Marty stick, but, uh, it was kind of a dirty trick, but, uh, you know, that's, yeah. You know, Cause well, we should have checked the stick. They told me that, you know, we should have measured every stick and players are responsible for their own sticks. But a lot of times a player will have a stick that's kind of questionable and then they would, get down to two minutes in the game, they would switch that stick. Right. To a, a straighter, straighter stick, you know, but that was unfortunate. But then you go on after that, you know, we would have gone home with a two game to nothing lead. And, uh, and we went home with a one-to-one -one and, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people can point their finger to that stick being the turning point And, uh, but we didn't score any goals after that. Right. Exactly. That's got, exactly what I was just going to say. You know, your team has to perform, you know, you got to get right. goals from the other team to win. That's what it comes down to. And we just didn't, we just didn't. Um, no, I mean, that's, you know, I, I think it's completely unfair to, to blame Marty for that, that the cup series loss. I mean, that's, there's just no way that one, two minute penalty should make that much of a difference. And, and really, Patrick Wall was outstanding in that series. I mean, he was just yeah. obviously the Hall of Fame level goaltender that he is. Um, but, you know, I, I did want to ask you real quick, too. So I don't think, obviously, Marty was the only one. <laughs> and not even just on the Kings, but across the league. I mean, I, I had read somewhere that at that particular time period that, of course, guys were trying to get any kind of an advantage they could. But like you said, they just happened to, uh, to know that Marty's, you know, his blade was a little illegal and they – they chose to capitalize on it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let me just tell you, I just thought of something that uh, this was when I was in the American League and the Voyageurs were in Montreal playing there then. That's an American League minor league team. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we arrived by bus and uh, Montreal had a late practice that day. And... Uh, so we were moving our stuff into our locker room. We were going to play there that night in Montreal. And so I hung up the gear and I'd never really gone out to look in the rink. But uh, after I hung the gear up, I 
went out in the hallway and looked up and there you see all the banners and everything. It's just like, wow. And I grew yeah. up the Boston Bruins uh, radio and uh, when I was a kid. And so I walked out up to the ice. The first guy that I saw go by was John Belleville. Wow. <laughs> wow. The tear to my eye. I mean, that's, that was I see, the first guy I saw John Belleville just skating by, and he just has that cush, cushion in his legs. And I said, wow. And then uh, several, many, many, many years later, I, I would, in the afternoon, and sometimes I'd go in the rink and in the visiting room, and I'd work out in their weight room. And, and John Belleville came in, and uh, I introduced myself and said hello to him. But I never told him that story, and now I wish that I had told him that story. You know, like, I had been a fan of his since since I was 12 years old. Yeah, uh, from all accounts, from what I've read and heard about him, just one of the most gracious oh, yeah. people you'll ever meet. Ever. Guy. Ralph Backstrom kind of a guy, you know, always. Right. That's another guy I never saw mad was Ralph Backstrom, but he was assistant coach in LA when Bob Berry was a coach. Mm -hmm. And the bus was supposed to leave at nine o'clock. And in fact, I was on the bus. The gear had already gone to the plane. And nine o'clock came and Bob Berry said, let's go. He's in the front seat. And so I was in the next seat across from him. I said, oh, Ralphie's not on. Let's go, he said. Ralph had to take a taxi to the airport. <laughs> and he was pretty <laughs> upset about that. And Bob Berry wouldn't even wait for his own assistant coach to come up. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that was quite the cold meeting. <laughs> I think we lost the night before. So. <laughs> oh, goodness. That is funny. That is so funny. Well, you know, despite the Kings not winning in 93, um, they did end up winning the Cup in 20, well, everybody knows, 2012, 2014. And um, you did get a, a ring from the 12 team, correct? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, which was pretty classy of the Kings to do that. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that, that had to have been an awesome feeling getting around. I'm sure you, you wish you were still, of course, it happened while you were behind the bench, but still, that was, I, I remember watching all that, and it was just, you could feel it right from the beginning of that playoff run that there was something special about that team and that they were going to make a lot of noise. It, it yeah, was... I'm, I'm so lucky. I mean, I have a Stanley Cup ring, a Calder Cup ring, and a World Cup of Hockey ring, and a Team Canada ring, and a bronze medal, and uh, I'm a happy camper. Man, that is that is tremendous. And I never that scored is... a goal, so, you know. <laughs> Well, you never scored a goal, but you made a lot of saves as far as injuries and all that goes, for sure. Yeah, it was fun. Definitely. Well, Pete, this has been fantastic. Like I said, I, I just I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all these stories. And, I, and I'm sure there's there's a ton more if we got talking more about them. So you're going to you're going to have to come back on. I, excuse me. I want to show you one more picture. I think it's up in, in the other room. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hold on a second. No problem, my friend. I'm gonna. I gotta open the curtains here. Thanks for your patience. No problem. Thank you. I mean, this is just like I said. This is a tremendous treat to have you on. So here's a picture of Dave Taylor and myself at um, in Toronto. In oh wow. 
with the Campbell Bowl. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, that is great. So there's a history behind this picture. It was in the training room in the in um it was a training room in Staples Center. And when Dean Lombardi came in, he wanted it out of there. So they took it out. And uh, then someone called me about two or three years ago and told me that, hey, the Kings sold that picture of yours. I guess they sold some old photos. Huh. And, uh, I had told the PR department, hey, if you ever get rid of that picture, I want it. Sure, but of course. Someone told me that, hey, I would have bought it, but they didn't have enough money with them. I don't know how much they wanted. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so the, the, so the Kings made up, had a new picture made uh, about two years ago and gave it to me. And I put it up here. Wow, that is great. That, that really is. My goodness. And then I have this um, Gretzky, Leroy Neiman. Wow. Gritz had this made for everybody. Wow, that's that's the record-breaking goal, correct? Yeah, yeah, 802, signed by Leroy Neiman and then Gretz here. Wow. He had these framed and um, and had one made and, and uh, gave us all one. So. Holy cow, that is that is awesome. That that really is. Well, I gave and you the ten dollar a... tour. I gave you the ten dollar <laughs> tour, and uh, but here's my striped bass from Massachusetts. Well, look at that thing, yeah. man. Yeah. So I got to keep. Do we have another minute? Sure, absolutely. Okay. I got to take you. Got to take you into the garage. Hold on. We're getting the bonus tour now. This is great. <laughs> it's a ten dollar tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hold on. So I have all this stuff in the garage. Um, some fishing stuff. Here's a picture in Spring. Here's I see that Springfield. No, that's in L.A. when I had a bunch of hair. <laughs> Here's my, one of my boats. And no kidding. This is from the Olympics in 84. I was a trainer for basketball. Uh, we had a clinic at the Forum. So I was a trainer. I ran the clinic. So that's another thing that I did. It was Jeez. really fun. And uh, this is uh, my Thousands Games with Terry Raskowski. That's that plaque that I showed you. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. Look some at Cup that. Cup Here's a Calder wow. Cup champion. Here's a Calder Cup photo. That is amazing. Another one of my boat pictures when I boat the Kingfisher. I love the name. That is great. That is awesome. And uh, my friend Al made these plaques on a swordfish that he caught. <laughs> yeah. And oh. uh, this photograph stuff, we do quite a bit of stuff that's fun to do, you know. Uh-huh. Wow. I took this when they brought Oh, wow. Look at that. When we moved, yeah. yeah. 
Wow. Here's our that... seven players. Here's our seven players and the two trainers from the Team Canada. All oh, the ones that went to the Soviet Union? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, man. And here's some sticks here that uh, that's 69.70 in Springfield. And then Robitaille picked to me for the end of his career. And there's a Gretzky stick when I had 1,500 games. Oh, look at that. And a look Mark at Mendes that. Mark Messier sent a stick over to the locker room when I had 2,500 consecutive games. Really? Yeah. What a class act. That's awesome. That yeah, is yeah. That fact, is amazing. In fact, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, the first trainer that the Hockey Hall of Fame decided to bring to Toronto for the induction ceremony. And uh, when Mark Messier got up to give his speech, uh, acceptance speech to induction he uh mentioned my name and said how happy he was to see that i was you know the trainers are finally being recognized so it, it was wow. great you know because yeah, you I, went in the same year he did right yes yeah yes yeah. yeah. but you know it all comes down to it, it was a job and uh the game is about the players not the trainers and we check our egos at the door but and I was so lucky and had a great run, and I'm so thankful for, you know, being able man, to oh man. Have, a, have a career. It wasn't even like a job, you know. It was so fun to go to work every day. And who can say that? You know, I could have been stuck down at that Navy base. Sure, right. You know? So. Well, I guess that's a, that's a testament to taking a chance, right? That's right, exactly. And then people giving you a chance. Sure, every, sure. It's a chance in life i mean i have a half a dozen people along the way that if they weren't there you know to uh to protect me and to keep me in the fold and uh you know uh, things would have changed wow that's still just just an incredible story p it, it really is it truly is and, and and again thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all this with us because this is like i said as a as a hockey history fan, as a hockey fan, and as a Kings fan, this has been a real treat. I tell you, thank you so much. Well, it's a treat for me too. Uh, this uh, a great hour and something. Uh, it was so much fun. I'm glad I could, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad I could be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, like I said, you are more than welcome to come back anytime because I'm sure there's many more that we didn't touch on. Which, uh, you know, we could. I'm sure we can get at least another hour. But uh, but Some for now. Stories. <laughs> Some stories I can't tell. <laughs> yes, I totally understand why, too. <laughs> oh, that's great. But no, hold on just for a second here. I'm just going to close the show out real quick. Uh, but again, thank you for, for coming on. Um, you can find us on the Sports History Network. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, of course, YouTube, and at Marty'sIllegalStick.com. So for Pete Demers, I'm Scott Kinville. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week on Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, 
We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.